Real Business with Alan Wick. Hello, this is Alan Wick. Welcome to my show. I'm a business coach and I love working with mold-breaking entrepreneurs, which I've been doing for 18 years. Before that, I spent 25 years involved with my own businesses. And for today's show, I'm delighted to welcome Emma Killerly, founder of Delicious Alchemy. So, Emma Killerly, I'm delighted that you're on my show. Welcome. Do introduce yourself to the listeners. Uh, thanks, Alan. Um, so, I'm the founder of Delicious Alchemy Limited. Uh, I, uh, I sit on the board of the company, but I no longer work in the business day to day. I see. And, and Delicious Alchemy, that's such a great name. What, what does Delicious Alchemy do? So, uh, uh, Delicious Alchemy, uh, we produce um, gluten and dairy-free food products out of an allergen-free site in Sheffield. So, uh, we're um, multi-million turnover at this point, and uh, we're multi-award winning, I'm grateful to say. Um, we specialize in breakfast cereals and baking mixes, and um, we sell our products uh, directly to customers online. We sell them into all the major retailers in the UK and also into the food service sector. Uh-huh. And, and where is Delicious Alchemy based? We, uh, well, our factory is based in Sheffield. Uh-huh. And how old is the company? Uh, founded in 2006, so that's 14 years, isn't it? I see. And you said you, you sell some to retailers and some direct to the public. Uh, would we know the brand? How would we know it if we go into any of the supermarkets that it's yours or is it own label? How does that work? We produce both branded and own label uh, products for customers like the big retailers. Um, so sometimes you'll see our, our product in store in our brand and sometimes you won't know it's us. Um, and uh, we've also last year started a co-packing operation, which means that we now pack products for other manufacturers from our site. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you that revenue stream certainly hit the ground running during lockdown when uh, people were reacting to much higher demand coming through retail given food service was uh, shut down. Yeah, I, I can imagine. How has lockdown affected the business? Well, um, you know, obviously we had a we had a real bump in in in, in sales when people were panic buying, and um, for the for the most most of our our, our lines uh, we were selling through retailers, the pipeline ran dry, you know, and, and that's really hard to do because it's it's not just what's on sale on the shelves. There's also stock in the back room of every supermarket. There's stock in regional distribution centres, in national distribution centres, so um, people really got desperate during lockdown and felt that they needed to stock up. And so we spent a long time not just fulfilling demand, but re, re, restocking the pipeline from beginning to end. Um, so that, that, was, uh, that was good sales numbers for us. No, nobody in Delicious Alchemy, apart from myself, got COVID. Um, it was, uh, the risk was really well handled. I know a lot of food companies have really suffered with their staff coming down with COVID and their staff have really suffered and primarily to say. Um, but um, the way it was handled, uh, the staff were all cohorted. Um, and, um, for example, the night shift was not allowed to mix with the day shift and you couldn't swap shifts for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. So you were either on earlies or on late and you were a team within your own right in a shift and um, everyone kept each other safe. It was amazing. I think um, the, so we did well out of the beginning of lockdown, but then we had a whole raft of products ready to launch. And unfortunately, our retail customers weren't able to launch them and because they were having problems um, in, in, in their retail estates. So the buyers wanted to launch, but the retail estates operationally weren't able to do it. So, as you can imagine, you know, a very large number of their staff contracted COVID. Back in the early days, they didn't have PPE. People didn't really understand the risk. So, a lot of staff were off ill. And, of course, you know, we need to remember that many, many retail workers died in those first few months, you know. And, and they're the unsung key workers and they deserve, you know, our thanks and praise for their bravery and perseverance in the pandemic so far. 
the the on the on cost to 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 store managers was that with so many off ill, they had to recruit very large numbers of new, inexperienced, untrained staff to keep stores running, and that was uh, very costly in terms of store efficiency and their ability to launch new products. In fact, their ability to keep the the shelves stocked. You know, we we've all experienced going into supermarkets and, and just finding things in a in a in a state of disarray. Mm-hmm. for many weeks and, and that was the reason why and it's it's sad and uh but um yeah fr- from our business point of our business plan point of view you know that was a, that was a downside to this year and, and continues to be a downside uh launching is very difficult right now yeah i can imagine that's a a fascinating insight into some of what's going on behind the scenes at the supermarkets i suspect that uh, most listeners will have been into supermarkets and not really understood what's going on there and what the kind of uh, challenges they've had. And so what's happened with new product launches for Delicious Alchemy during this period? Has they been delayed? Are they still happening? What's yeah, they're still happening. They're being delayed. I mean, we we estimate our business plan is a year behind where we had hoped it would be. Um, but uh, they're being delayed. I mean, they're good products. A uh, good price. They're at the right, the right, the right place in the market at the right time. So they they will stand on their own two feet. I've no doubt. You mentioned that it's gluten free. I, I think listeners will be interested to know who are the market. Who is the market? I, I assume celiacs is one part of the market. What about others? What how how is that made up? Who buys your your uh, products? Well, about we did a we did a, a a big piece of customer research a while back, and it seems that fifty percent of our market is uh, people who um, have an issue with an allergen. So, who who uh, who finds that they have a marked health improvement when they eat a product that's allergen free. So we produce gluten and dairy free, um, and uh, we don't handle any allergens on our site. So. Although we can't state that our products are nut-free and and other allergen-free, those those ingredients don't uh, come into contact with the food that we produce on our site, and and we we do good due diligence to to try and make sure that there's no residue of those products. So we can't guarantee it because we we don't grow all of our ingredients ourselves, but we um, we can uh, we're fairly confident, you know that. Uh, we, we definitely know things are gluten and dairy free anyway. Um, the uh, 50, so that means that the other 50% of our market is um, more people who feel that they want to buy gluten and dairy free because it may bring them a health benefit, one that they haven't put their finger on, or maybe they're trying to lose weight and they feel that, um, for example, giving up gluten uh, is known to reduce bloating and that can look like weight loss and it will it is weight loss although not in the traditional way it's not fat loss if you like but it does instantly give you a couple of pounds off on the scales when you're not bloated um, and so we call those guys the lifestylers so 50 percent of our market are the lifestylers and 50 percent are, are the uh, are the people who um get a distinct health benefit when they're eating our products that's how we slice it if you like the data, I see. So between people who are gluten free, they they celiac for medical reasons, they have to avoid it, and then people who do that for for general health reasons. I, I've heard a lot about this rise of flexitarianism, if that's the right word, of people who are eat, still eating everything but less meat, less fish, more vegetarian foods, maybe towards macrobiotic. Is that what you mean by lifestylers? Just to clarify, it's not just celiacs that are 50% of our market. It's anyone who has any level of health problem eating an allergen. So that could range from uh, I get a bit of a headache to, uh, you know, I'm going to die, you know. So we, we, we put everyone who has any type of health problem, including celiac disease, in with the uh, the allergen uh people and then the lifestylers are more like you say people who are experimenting with food they're flexitarians they are uh, trying to do what's best for them uh, in terms of uh, their eating they're trying to obey 
recommendations from the government. And they're trying to do that balancing act that we all do with regard to health, weight, food. And my show is very much aimed at other business owners. So if I may, I'd like to ask a few questions about the business itself. Um, Mm. How many people do you employ? What sort of size is the factory? Uh, What does the company look like? at the moment? Well, we have about 30 uh, employees, most of which, I mean, the vast majority of whom are full-time or part-time, so they are not uh, consultants or people on a, on a freelance contract. We have three lines uh, within the factory. Uh, we operate on a two-shift basis, so we have earlies and lates, uh, earlies and afternoons. Mm. We used to have nights, but we, um, through factory efficiency work, we uh, decided that we could move everything into days, uh, alongside investing in a new line so we had we we suddenly had two lines and then we had two shifts instead of one line and three shifts if you like mm-hmm. so um, as the uh, as the business grew we were able to um, to do that uh, and uh, gain better efficiency does that answer what you asked yeah that's fine thank you mm-hmm. and uh, thanks and, and as far as the organization and what you do these days what is your role in the business so these days, um, I come into the business um, about two days a month uh, and I uh, read my board pack that I'm sent by Nigel, our CEO, and then um, I uh, attend a board meeting with him. And of course, like now that we're working from home, it can be, you know, a board meeting that's broken up into two hour parcels over a couple of consecutive days. It depends how much we have to get through, you know. Mm. Okay, thank you. That's really interesting. Um, Let's take a break from the present and go right back to when you started the company. And tell us a little bit about why you started it. What were you doing before? Uh, And what gave you the idea even to start a company making gluten-free food? I had stomach problems for a long time. I didn't really understand uh, where that was coming from. And to be honest, I didn't really look into it. I was also very, very tired a lot of the time um, and, uh, you know, sleeping in the middle of the day and such. Um, uh, but in 2003, I, I was walking with the Ramblers and um, we walked through a wheat field. And when I got back into my car, uh, I took off my socks and I saw that I had um you know, itchy lumps in my socks. And when I shook my socks out, there were wheat kernels in in them. So I realized that where the wheat had touched my skin, I'd had an allergic reaction. And I thought, well, if it's doing that to my skin, what's it doing to my stomach? So I immediately gave up wheat, no planning or anything. It was really difficult. <laughs> you know, when you've not been on a wheat-free diet and suddenly you give it up, it's like, well, what do you eat? You know. Mm. Anyway, I gave it up for a week. And within that week, at the end of it, I had very immediate health improvement. I mean, I was no longer tired. I didn't have hives on my skin any longer. And um, I, uh, my stomach was vastly improved. And I thought, goodness, this is something big. And so after uh, a couple of months of living wheat-free, I decided to set up uh, a company and go back to university and study it. So in 2004, I went back to Sheffield Hallam University uh, uh, well, sorry, I went to Sheffield Hallam University. My first degree was um, in, in media uh, and German in, in Sussex University. Um, but uh, I, uh, I, I, at that point, I was still wheat-free, but then I got diagnosed as celiac. Uh-huh. So I, um, I, I was studying away the food. I absolutely loved it. Going back to university to study something completely different was, um, was amazing. I was still working in video games at the time. Um, but uh, I, I, I decided that I was going to, 100% was going to set up this business in food. So I entered the university's you know, enterprise challenge and I won it. And then I won the Yorkshire-wide university enterprise challenge and then the national challenge. So I ended up with a pot of money to invest in the business. And then I founded Delicious Alchemy in June 2006, so a year later. I spent um, quite a while getting my ducks in a row and uh, for a year to an outsider, it seemed like nothing much was happening. I remember getting contacted by the university and them saying, Emma, are you doing anything? Are you just spending all that money on, you know, gallivanting? And I said, no, no, I'm just getting ready to hit the market. And they said, okay, well, you know, let us know. So, um, in 2007, a year later, I sent my first invoice and that was a food service invoice. So, 
um, I was working with hotels and restaurants. And then at the end of 2007, I got my first listing with um, Sainsbury's. I'm allowed to say Sainsbury's because they used a, a Delicious Alchemy as a um, as a case study for their uh, new supplier program. Um, so um, I was so I was within the first year of business. I was supplying both retail and food service. Um, our food service range is different. So it's 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 breakfast cereals, yes, but it's also a variety of breads and cakes. Um, but we supply them through the frozen supply chain because that's what re- hotels and restaurants are used to. Whereas retail, we supply through the long life ambient uh, supply chain. Um, then in 2008, I think that was the real turning point because the World Health Organization approved gluten-free oats as a food and ingredient that people with celiac disease could eat. So I jumped on that and Delicious Alchemy uh, was the first company to launch gluten-free oats into UK retail. And um, with that innovation, uh, launching it into market really started the company's high growth cycle and it powered it on for, for many years afterwards. So gluten-free oats are not for the faint-hearted. They are difficult. They, um, they, they are tricky to get right. Um, and so not everyone could follow easily in Delicious Alchemy's footsteps. In, in, so there's a level of protection there, if you like. Not for long, but, but it was there in the first couple of years. In 2009, I launched oats, uh, gluten-free oats as part of a wider range into Waitrose. Um, we had a royal visit that year, which was amazing. Oh. Mm-hmm. Sophie, uh, Count, uh, Countess of Wessex, came down. And I hired my first two employees. So the I became we mm-hmm. uh, in 2009. So from two, you know, I started, I got the concept in 2003. And it took till 2009 to really get into high growth. You know, so it takes a while, you know, and, and up until then, I'd been working on my own in, in my spare bedroom on it. So, you know, um, it's just perseverance, I think, uh, at times. Um, but it's also, like I said earlier, having the right product at the right time in the market. Um, so over the next couple of years, we grew exponentially across retail primarily. Um, food service took a back seat because we, we just didn't have the resource, uh, the human resource to um, launch into it. One year, uh, growth was at 139%. It was absolutely stonking. Yeah. Um, then came the inevitable period of consolidation because we had to bolster the company's infrastructure so that it can continue to service that level of growth. Um, and we grew and grew and then happily uh, in 2015, we opened our own factory in Brightside. But before that, we were co-manufacturing with other uh, on other sites with other people. So 2015 was a, was a very proud moment. And in that year, we went from eight employees to 36. Um, and uh, at the beginning, we were operating from two different sites. So there was a lot of learning there. It was a big, a big change for us, and it needed careful management. And, and you know, it was a challenge, no doubt. You know, um, and soon enough, the clerical side moved in with the factory, which really improved things. So then we bought some new machinery. We uh, started producing baking mixes in addition to breakfast cereals. So we added a category to our portfolio, and we grew further. And since then, we've added a few more lines to our factory production capability, which I mentioned earlier, and the latest of which, which is a pot line, which we've just uh, commissioned. Um, and uh, we'll be producing our first pots on it um, for the first time in mid-October. The funding you got, the grants that you got when you started, um, I was wondering if they were enough to, to start a factory. And what you've explained is that it got you off the ground. You're able to do get the business off the ground through with co-packing. So you didn't need that much capital to begin mm. with. And has there been any other funding, any other investment funding or grant funding during those years? I think listeners particularly interested in growth and how yeah. businesses go from one stage to the next to the next. Yeah. Well, um, when I um, when I won all of those uh, university awards, I had a pot of twenty thousand pounds, and that got me started. It got me um, into uh, it got me it got me got me that listing in Sainsbury's. I had to take a loan out, um, and I couldn't get a bank loan. 
So I had to go to an alternative lender, which in this case I think was um, called South Yorkshire Investment Fund. I think we, went, I know we went with them for a few a few launches with supermarkets, but I think the Sainsbury's launch was the first launch with them. They then became um, Yorkshire uh, Invest, I think it is, um, and. Um, we we paid that loan back successfully, so we got a good started getting credit rating, good you know, and good review. You know, uh, if people wanted to ask South Yorkshire Investment Fund about us, they could, and we we've always paid back our our loan on time. Uh, it also because we were borrowing from a borrower, uh, you know, an institution rather, and um, it made me look at start start setting up financial systems within the business, such as monthly management accounts, which was very useful. And I must say. I would have been just focused on sales if I hadn't if I hadn't been pushed into that. <laughs> I would have been just sales, 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 sales. <laughs> but um, you do you do need to get into that you know um, discipline of monthly the monthly management accounts because it shows you so much about your own business that you might not ordinarily see, uh, including cash flow. Um, so then um, we we took out further loans with them. Um, uh, with with the Yorkshire uh, vehicles that were outside the bank, because the bank still wouldn't lend to us. Because if you remember, two thousand and eight was the big global crash, and and bank banks weren't releasing their capital because they were told they had to recapitalize um, to a, to to a certain point. So they they were very reluctant, especially someone like me who'd come from video games didn't have a black book of network uh, of, of contacts or a network within the food industry. And, you know, they wanted to see proof. They wanted to see, they wanted to see the business doing well before they got involved in it. We had a very low uh, 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 overdraft by that point. So we were only on like 20,000 pounds and it was a struggle sometimes to grow, you know, to grow the business as fast as we did on 20 grand overdraft mm. with, with a couple of loans um from from their uh, investment vehicles it was really really tricky i didn't want i still own 100 percent of the shares in delicious alchemy i didn't want to bring investors in um and uh rightly or wrongly that's how i proceeded um when we got to i can't i can't remember whether we took out any further loans i think we just bootstra i think i just bootstrapped it really alan you know i don't think uh i think we we off, we got a bigger overdraft and that helped, um, and a nice big chunky one. We we changed banks um, and then when the banks were ready to talk, we changed banks and we got a good deal on an overdraft. And um, yeah, we've just we've just continued on in that way. So we haven't had to raise any investments so far, uh, although that might change, you know. Uh, and um, I'm open to it now. Um, and uh, yeah, that's how we did it. That's how we did it. It was tough, you know. It was yeah, tough. Imagine. But I think every way is tough. Every way you cut it, it's tough, you know. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And can you remember going back? Uh, if there was anyone that inspired you to start a business, was there somebody you admired or? Something? Yeah, there was. I got this. I, I became a member of Costco, and I got this. Um, there was this piece about Sahar Hashemi. Uh, and she and her brother Bobby had set up Coffee Republic, I yep. think the name of the company was at the time. I think they got bought out by a big chain later on. I'm not entirely sure. But uh, she was she was doing the, 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 the PR rounds because she'd written a book. So I bought her book and I read it, and that actually inspired me to set up Delicious Alchemy. So thank you, Sahara Jamie. I've never <laughs> met you, but, yeah, you were really inspirational for me. <laughs> Uh, that's great. And did you have any training, any business training before you set it up or during the time, the early year or two? Well, um, I have been working in video games for um, about a decade and uh, um, I had, uh, you know, all that corporate stuff. Um, and then uh, I decided I would set up on my own within video games. So I had sort of a precursor. I didn't um, necessarily do big cash flows and monthly management accounts or anything like that. I just managed, I was a, I was like a sole trader, if you like, but I did have a limited company, but it was on a very small scale. So um, yeah, I did have a bit of, a bit of, uh, no training, but a bit of off the hoof experience uh, prior to Delicious Alchemy. But <laughs> Delicious Alchemy was rather a, you know, baptism of fire because I was dealing with stock. I was dealing with very large customers and I was a small player in a, in, a, in, a, in an industry that was only used to dealing with big players. 
And that was tricky. It was tricky to, to you know, for the buyers, the supermarket buyers and, and people, the supply chain guys in there to understand how small we really were. But we didn't want to sort of go, oh, yeah, we're tiny, tiny, because then they might think, oh, well, they're not able to supply us. So <laughs> it's like uh, managing that. I think we managed our customer uh, our customers quite well. We, we were... Um, they often told us that when they measured us against other suppliers within the free-from category, that we were um, in the top group of meeting our, you know, we always kept the shelves stocked, basically. There's nothing a supermarket hates more than giving you a listing and then you, you know, you deliver in late and they have empty shelves. Empty shelves mean lower sales and they hate that. Quite rightly so. So we always met our um, supply KPIs. We're very good at that. Do you remember when you started the business, Emma, when you had any goals at the time? I think like, my only goal was I want to have a big business that um, deals with stock because my previous business was a service uh, business uh, where I was providing a service to other businesses. So that that was it. I wanted to be big. I didn't know how big. And I didn't know what I wanted to do with it when I got big. Um, I just winged it. That was it. <laughs> and uh, along the way, uh, did you read any more books uh, about business? Did you? Because I noticed you were using, you were talking about monthly management accounts from early on. Did you um, uh, take any more training or anything to increase that knowledge of running the business as well as your expertise on the actual product side? Well, um the degree, the degree I started but never finished in Sheffield Hallam University was very much a food business degree, and it's still running. It's called food, at the time it was called food marketing management. I think that exact degree is still available, and it was excellent because it was about the food industry. So that that was a good training platform, not just for food product development, but also for you know how the food industry works, which is what I really needed. Um, I didn't uh, I. I didn't do any training in business as such. I just, I just kind of winged it. But then um, uh, I uh, got in. I was put in touch with a, a really great mentor, and uh, he helped me an awful lot um, to grow the business and to think of things. You know, my, my skill set needed to grow in line with the growth of the business, and and that was actually quite hard when the business was growing so so fast. You know, um, and. Um, yeah, having somebody else there as a as a mentor was is incredibly valuable. And sometimes he would recommend books uh, that I would uh, usually not read because I'm a devil. But um, you know, at the odd time I would take his advice and would read them. <laughs> and when I did, I was always grateful that I had read them. So I should have read the other ones too. <laughs> and, and again, early days. So the the early story of Delicious Alchemy, but. Um, I, I always ask, you know, if, if there was a moment, um, and it's particularly relevant for early stage businesses or entrepreneurs, people who may think of starting a business, that when did you know a business would succeed? And I'm going to guess that it may have been that moment early on when you got a listing with Sainsbury's that it sounded like that was, wow, you know, we're, that this we're really uh, uh, real now. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I, I work now with um, high growth startups, advising them as a specialist business advisor. I'm, I'm part of a program being run by my alma mater, so Sheffield Hallam University, um, where I help uh, high growth startups. And my big thing with them is you must get your customer value proposition right. Um, and you know, we, I, I just went for everything in the early days. And I think that's kind of what you have to do. You throw a lot of things at your wall and you see what sticks. Um, and uh, we were doing food service. We were looking at, we were looking at retail packs as well. And I think because I had that spread, when uh, the technologists from Sainsbury's came to my stand at the IFE, um, the, inter the um, gosh, I can't remember the name of that, uh, that that exhibition now. I think it's called the International Food Expo. Um, and uh, he 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 was looking at the food service stuff. Now he knew he couldn't do anything with me on bread and cakes because we were frozen supply chain, um, and and we didn't have the skills to do the long life ambient that they were doing back then. So there wasn't much fresh gluten-free coming through the supermarket supply chain back then. Certainly no fresh bread. It was all this long life stuff, which um, people who were in, who were buying in that at that time would, <laughs> will remember probably not so fondly. Mm -hmm. um, 
it didn't taste very good. But when he saw the breakfast cereals, he knew, well, that's a long life ambient product that I can work with her on. And um, he came to my stand and he didn't reveal his badge. He'd hidden it because he didn't want to be inundated. And so we were having a good chat. And then he said, listen, I work for Sainsbury's and um, I'm interested in your gluten-free muesli. Would you like to come in and uh, and pitch for it? And I said, absolutely, I would. Yes, fantastic. So they were at Sainsbury's at the time were running a supply something new uh, program because they realized that they needed more fresh suppliers with, with fresh innovative ideas uh, into their business. And, um, and it went from there. But the other thing I did, Alan, just the reason why Kevin came to my stand was that I entered, you know, I did every piece of marketing that I could at that time that was free. Um, I didn't have a lot of money. I was still operating at that time off my £20,000 that I'd won. So I used some of it to um, buy this tiny one metre by one metre stand at, on the Yorkshire section of the uh, in the IFE. Um, and um, I, I entered our uh, ginger cake into their innovation award, not just for the cake itself, because it was gluten and dairy free, but also for the packaging, because it was a, a, a single portion and it had this peel down packaging. So it, it was easy for um, people to eat on the go, but it was also easy for restaurants to just unpack it, uh, have it kept whole. And I called it a little ginger loaf cake. And um, so they could they could serve it in as a loaf or they could slice it up or they could do what they wanted with it. Um, chefs could. And um, and so I won um, the innovation award for the whole show for that. And so Kevin was, you know, as a good technologist and, and business development person, we went down to see who was who was creating the most uh, winning innovation. And we were top of that list and he came to the stand and, and that's how it all started. Yeah, fascinating. And and in, in something I'm very interested in is around innovation and in business and so on. And is that something that's continued to this day from that original time of it innovating uh, through the company? Has the company carried on doing new things year on year on year? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've, we've tried to, definitely. And um, some of it has been success and some of it not so much of a success. And sometimes it has been a case of the market wasn't ready for it. You know, we were too quick. We were too soon off it. So, um, so this year we've we've developed a range of vegan products. Like um, we have this vegan burger we're about to launch, which is so close to the taste of real beef mince that you just wouldn't believe it. And we have vegan porridge pots. So we have um, various different flavors in those. We have, um, uh, I think, we have we have a fruit flavor. We have golden syrup flavor. Um, and we have a plain one. Now, we tried to launch vegan porridge pots a couple of years ago, maybe seven years ago, and they just failed. You know, people weren't as interested in vegan foods as they are now. But the, now the time is right. There's a lot of appetite for it, um, so much so that we've invested in a pot line in the business. Uh, and as I said, we're, we're going to do our first production on that um, in October. Now, I don't... <laughs> You know, innovation, um, I can talk more about that, actually, before I go into the pot line, because that's quite an interesting story. But um, baking mixes, again, um, hugely popular this year because people aren't going out as much and they're baking at home. And not everyone is a good scratch baker or even wants to be bothered with it. So baking mixes are really on the rise this year. So we're extending our range of um, sweet baking mixes uh, and we have a, a, a really great vegan carrot cake mix uh, on the go and a lemon drizzle. Um, we have falafel mix, which is more on the savoury side. Um, and, uh, yeah, we, you should start seeing those products on the shelf soon, uh, depending on how our retail customers are able to, to do launches. In food service, we've got a really excellent batter mix that we're going to launch. We're hopefully going to launch soon to fish and ship shops. So, I, don't, I think celiacs will, and, and people who are avoiding gluten will all agree that the existing gluten-free batter mixes are prone to giving the fish soggy bottoms. So, <laughs> so there's a room, as fish always have a soggy bottom, <laughs> but um, not, they're not supposed to when they come out of a fryer. So, the, so there's room for improvement there. And there's also a definite demand from business to business customers, so from the chip shops themselves. Um, fryers are very proud of their work and they don't like selling food to customers that they considered below par. 
So um, there's there's a good there's a good opportunity there in terms of you know customer value proposition again what I was t- t- talking to you about earlier it's it's key to work out you know yes there might be a problem with the product but is it one that anyone's really interested in solving because sometimes it's not um, so yeah the, the, just going back to the pot line we you know we we ordered this pot line for a launch in spring um from a place near Wuhan in China oh. um, so we ordered it in November and then god love them but you know you know it hit them so hard and um we we didn't actually take delivery of it until summer and in the meantime we still had to uphold our launch with our retail customers so the guys were going gosh how are we going to do this so our engineer uh, put together something very ingenious. Uh, it's temporary because it's very labor intensive. So um, we launched uh, as we promised we would do uh, into retail and um, we uh, more or less hand packed the pots uh, from the start. So now we're, now we're getting the, the, the pot line up and running and um, we'll be doing the full proper pot line production in the middle of October, which is exciting for everybody. Well, that's such a great story of British ingenuity. Oh, yeah. To the rescue at the last minute. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, you know, you're not going to let your customers down. You know, they were still, even though ultimately they couldn't launch it, you know, well, and and they were sorry about that, the retail customer was. They still, you know, we still have to get it out for them on time. We can't let them down, you know. And there's a couple of very, very important themes coming through. One is that from the very beginning, you've really focused on pleasing the customers, always having the customers first. And and that was illustrated by uh, never leaving these retailers with empty shelves and how important it is that you really understand their needs. And then secondly, from the very first product that won you the award, there's this DNA in this in the DNA of the company that you've managed to put into the company. I'm going to ask you more about how you've done that. Has been innovation and coming out with new ideas all the time. So there's a leading element of it. That's great. That's very exciting. Oh, thank you. Yeah, innovation is interesting. It's what I'm most interested in. And I think it's kind of easier these days because, you know, you've got social media, you know, and um, a lot of Food is is highly innovative anyway because people like something new. They just, you know, there is the case that most um, families will eat the same, you know, seven or eight meals every week, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, just repeat them. Uh, But at the same time, there's also a massive case for innovation in food. People like something new, especially when it suits them on the go or when people were working more in offices, they needed something quick. That's changed now. Uh, You know, people are happy to spend a little bit more time. And if they want something quick, they just order it off Deliveroo, you know. So, um, yeah, it's all all different. And and the the pandemic is... is, uh, it's definitely changing purchasing habits. And with that, we will be changing how we innovate, you know, and and, and how we go to market as well, I think. it's uh, What's been really interesting, I think, in the food service sector is the rise of, of black kitchens um, and or dark kitchens, I think they're called. Sorry, I don't even have my own terminology right. It's so new to me. Um, and um, it's where people in their own homes are cooking uh, restaurant-type meals and selling them on 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 restaurant-style menus uh, and deliver via delivery and just eat. Um, and uh, even big businesses getting into these uh, this type of. Uh, I think it's. You know, probably you've worked in food service. Is it dark kitchen or is it or is it black kitchen? What is it? Dark kitchens. Dark kitchens. And they're yeah. often in containers, like old shipping containers. And exactly, on, yeah. On the side, out of the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've heard of um, big businesses who don't want to who don't want to supply Deliveroo and Just Eat and the, and the like through their restaurants, uh, and they set up these um, kitchens uh, nearby or even far away um, in ship- the likes of shipping containers or small industrial units, and they're cooking exactly the same food in exactly the same way to exactly the same standards, but they're not operating out, out of their restaurants. Mm-hmm. Um, and which, is, which strikes me as a bit odd because you'd imagine that they would want to 
you know, produce more food through a restaurant to bring the, the profitability of that particular restaurant up. But clearly there's a business case for it that, that is more complex and, and works for them. So, yeah, it's really interesting. I think uh, I think there's, there's opportunity for, um, for innovation now post-COVID. And, and on well, that, topic, what am I saying? Post COVID, in, in in the middle of COVID, in the middle of it, yes. Um, and and on that subject of innovation, I can't let let this go because it's often something that that comes up in conversation. It's not something you've managed to do naturally. Delicious alchemy really is hard to do, and that is what would you say you've done? How have you managed to keep that? culture of innovation going over the years so that now you're only involved a couple of days a month pretty hands-off and yet still the company is carrying on in exactly the way you started it how have you managed to do that well i think um i think um it's a lot of it's it's the right hiring you know um, and uh, it's we have values in the business, so we have uh, three different values we have um safety so we keep our staff and our customers safe we have innovation, which is a key, another key value. Uh, and the other one is helpfulness. So we're helpful to one another and to our customers. And we want them to really see that we're being helpful to them. And um, especially, you know, when people have uh, health problems, they want someone who's helpful. They don't want to constantly hit uh, cul-de-sacs and, and closed doors. You know, they want to be helped. And that's what we're here for. So, um, yeah, having innovation as a central value within the business has really helped. And, and we, we, you know, when we're, we're doing appraisals with staff, we one of the one of the one of two of the of the, of the questions and the sections within the appraisal is what have you done in the business that has been innovative this year? Um, and uh, how, you know, how has that, you know, uh, helped customers, reduced costs? I mean, there's a variety of different ways in which innovation can help a business. It's not just about developing new and innovative um, products. It's also about going about things in an innovative way, like, for example, the guys did when the, um, when the kit wasn't going to ar- arrive in from Wuhan mm-hmm. on time. So, um, so the staff... At Delicious Alchemy, the employees are, are very motivated by innovation. There's also a very big safety culture within Delicious Alchemy. So um, anyone, anyone in the business has the uh, is empowered uh, and expected to challenge anyone else, including me and the CEO, if they're doing something that they, that is con- they would consider unsafe or not quite right, especially down on the factory floor. So factory floors are very dangerous places. There's forklift trucks going around. There's machinery that can take off fingers. And, you know, you, you really need to know your onions. And nobody knows it better than the people working down in the factory. So um, quite often I've been reprimanded. Uh, and uh, it's like, Emma, you can't stand there without doing this. Or you need to just, can you, you, you're you in the wrong place. You know, can you please put on this type of PPE because we're producing this particular type of product today? And, um, you know, and I and I always obey and they kind of like that, <laughs> telling <laughs> telling me, having to tell me what to do. Um, and I don't mind. I haven't had the same level of training on factory floor as they have. And um, and it's quite right. And I think that's what good looks like. Yeah. Um, so in terms of safety, having a safety culture invites innovation as mm. well. Mm. And that's the point I'm trying to make regarding innovation here is that, you know, when you when you say to your staff, what what ne- we have a near miss system. So we don't just report accidents. We report when accidents could have happened. And, and that invites innovation because um, employees are invited to say, OK, look, this this was a, this could have been an accident. But maybe we do this, this and this to make sure that doesn't happen again. You know, and so you're, you know, with, with that culture, you get innovation as well um, within the factory and you also get cost effectiveness, you know, because quite often that then invites a conversation. Of, well, actually, if we did that, this could happen and this could happen. And oh, yeah, what about that? And so then, yeah, there's that there's that going on as well. So it's not just about product development. So I think it's about putting a value in mm. your business about innovation, but making sure that that value has reason to be lived up to. You know, yeah, yeah, fascinating. Um, and then if we change gear again and uh, look to the future, 
uh, Emma of the business and and what the plans are going forward. What do you think does the future look like? What opportunities are there? What obstacles over the next few? Looking, let's hope it's beyond the COVID uh, virus and, and and it's post that period. How do you see the well, next few years? Well, I think um, well our core proposition is that we produce gluten and dairy free food, uh, and we're extending into meat free too. So that aligns with um, with our vegan focus. So we're going to be launching a, a large raft of new vegan products. As I've mentioned, our vegan burger, which is very beef mincy. Um, and um, so and keep an eye out for the other products that I recommend. Uh, I, I uh, mentioned like the sweet vegan mixes, the carrot cake, the lemon drizzle. Um, and then other focuses will be food service. So we had a big plan this year to launch a lot of products into food service, which obviously didn't didn't take place. Um, and um, so when it recovers, uh, we'll be we'll be enacting that plan. And um, we are also packing uh, products for other manufacturers, as I mentioned. So capacity ran out in factories to, during uh, lockdown, um, and then they they came to us and said, "Look, can you?" can you pack for us uh, even on a temporary basis so we're getting more and more um, inquiries about that month on month so we're essentially spreading our product portfolio across more sectors within the food industry um, we have more vegan pots coming through as I've mentioned um, and our branded range that's available online and in most supermarkets so we're experimenting with that and we're launching new developments to our online customers only in a white label format to see how they do so we're not investing in in branded packaging initially we're launching the product in plain packaging and if our online customers like them then we'll move them into our brand full time so it's interesting it's going to be interesting to see whether that takes off as a mechanism um and uh, yeah i think we're, we're we're going to be looking into the new food service which is you know these online delivery platforms which have really i mean they were big before lockdown but my goodness now they're massive you know i heard a stat on on radio four a couple of weeks ago which was that during lockdown during the big lockdown let's say the first big lockdown let's say um a lot of young adults moved back home with their parents and um, they estimated that the cost to the parents per adult per young adult was two thousand five hundred pounds and a very big part of that was paying for deliveroo and just eat deliveries into the house, <laughs> which I thought was uh, really interesting. So there's definitely something there worth investigating. I don't know what might come out of that. So yeah, I, I heard that uh, on uh, there was a, a stat that um, Domino's Pizza had already taken on three or four thousand staff, and then just recently have decided to take on another six thousand staff. Wow! Staff. Wow! Can you imagine? The demand has gone through the roof. Yes. Home yes. delivery of Domino's pizza. So I think there's yeah. a lot there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's so, it's so interesting, isn't it? And, um, you know, people, oh, you know, people within the food industry, these, the, the sort of established food industry who don't understand this, this type of uh, market, it's interesting because they go, oh, well, nobody will pay that much for that. And look, you know, people are paying £4.50 for a burger from a from a burger chain you know it's a lot of money but they're paying for to get it delivered into their house you know and they're willing to pay that so there is there's something there i think worth looking at all the times ahead emma sound exciting for delicious alchemy and you know that the the, the theme of my show uh, is stay hungry stay learning and it's something mm. i've i've stolen from steve jobs and, and adjusted from his stay hungry, uh, uh, stay foolish. And so in terms of a theme about learnings and other business owners or people who are thinking of starting a business, be fascinating to hear about your learnings along the way. What would you say has been some of the greatest learnings that you've had? Well, I think in the, in the early days, it was cash, 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 you know, because you know, we didn't get investment, so we bootstrapped it. So we were often struggling for cash um, and uh, we made it work but we had to have our we had to have it nailed down how much cash we had um, and uh, that was 
that was a real learning and it, and it was a constant uh, headache actually <laughs> you know in especially when we were growing so fast but um yeah there's nothing you you absolutely must keep an eye on the cash we must um and, and maximize your use of it as well you know so in the factory for example we will asset finance things we will order it uh, we'll get it delivered commissioned up and running and then we'll asset finance it to release cash where we need to so it's making your cash work for you using the um the the facilities that are available through banks and other lenders and i think that works really well um and sometimes your customers especially very large customers will have a pay me early scheme and they're worth really worth looking into so in food retail um most of the uh, retailers have a pay me early scheme that you can sign up to and it's like a form a very very cheap form of invoice discounting without being signed into a contract so you can choose certain orders to be paid early if you need it at a very very cheap price um so that's worth looking into especially for food companies going into retail i think um you know a, a, a big thing was keeping focused so uh you know, you know entrepreneurs like like me like like people everyone who's an entrepreneur are very highly creative and um you need to focus on what's working um, instead of moving on to the next new shiny idea. And that's really difficult because the new shiny idea is far sexier than the existing one that's kind of working but hasn't been maximized. You need to max that idea out first and then you need to move on or, pa or pass it on to somebody with the capability of taking that off you and maximizing it out within your business and then move on to the next shiny new idea. And that's really, really difficult. And when I'm um, I'm working now, as I said, with uh, high growth uh, food and tech, tech startups, um, and uh, that's a big challenge for them, you know, and uh, it's, you know, there's so many opportunities when you're starting up. It's like, where do I put my focus? Um, and quite often with, with my clients, it's how do I keep my focus <laughs> mm. on, on what's working, you know? Mm. And I think the last thing is, you know, we, we found out what our customer value proposition was, was really early on. And, and a big part of that was the right product at the right time, mm. uh, which were the gluten-free oats. Um, and, uh, I think uh, nailing down your customer value proposition and finessing it as you go along is really, really important. And what I mean by that is that you need to find a real and resonant customer need that you're solving in your business. Because like I said earlier, there are some customer needs that, yeah, they're needs, but they're not bothered enough to do anything about it. Mm. So the, the resonant piece of it comes in is when they are, it's the proof that they are ready and willing to pay to result to solve it um and uh you know if you're for say looking for a potential investor to come into your business you will need to prove that your idea is both real and resonant uh, and that you can make a that, that, that the business is going to work before a potential investor will come in you know most of the time 99% of the time and you need to do that before your company runs out of money and I had 20 grand that I'd won. I needed to to do that before I ran out of that money. And uh, I did it. Yeah, to, to your worked. credit. A, a really amazing story, Emma. And um, thank you so much for, for, for sharing it with us and, and coming on my show. And if, if people want to find out more about Delicious Alchemy, what's the URL? So it's uh, www.deliciousalchemy.com or .co.uk. Either one works fine. Fantastic. Well, oh, thanks, Alan. thank you so much, Emma, and all the very best for the future. Oh, thank you, Alan. Okay. Take care. Bye. Real Business with Alan Wick.